This is Focal Point for Wednesday the 4th of November 2009. It's an open and shut argument. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Pudney and Gihan Pereira for this week's edition. Hello Chris, how are you going? I'm very well, thanks Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm looking forward to today's topic. Uh, so let me just do a bit, bit of an introduction about it, because for most people outside the tech industry, the most well-known and popular us versus them argument, if they talk about this at all, is the one between Microsoft and Apple. So people see Microsoft as a big, bad, old giant, and it's using its muscle, and sometimes unfairly using its muscle, to squash its competitors. But at the same time, it's struggling to survive against some of the new kids on the block. And Apple is seen as a young, smart, hip company that's taking it on. It's got a cult-like following, and it's fighting hard to break the hold that Microsoft has over at least the operating system market. And in this argument, it's pretty easy for people to take a side. Many people do, and sometimes for purely emotional reasons rather than necessarily logical and rational reasons. So Apple fans in particular, and Chris, you and I know a few of them, they seem to love their underdog status, whether they're siding with the small guy in this whole idea of David versus Goliath. And, and I think even among the non-Apple fanatics, uh, some of them don't seem to mind if Microsoft brought down a peg or two, because it kind of opens up the playing field and leaves it less of a monopoly. So in that argument, uh, which has been going on for a while, people tend to take sides easily. But there's another conflict, and the, the one that we're going to talk about today, between two well-known tech brands. And in this one, it's not as easy to choose. It's Apple versus Google. Now, both of them are seen as young and hip and savvy, and there's a lot to like about both of them, and Google's undoubtedly already the bigger player, but they're not seen in the same bad light that Microsoft's seen in, perhaps because they are newer. In fact, they're newer than Apple uh, themselves, and both companies are seen as innovators, but they're doing innovation differently, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So if there's a poster child for the Web 2.0 principles of collaboration and sharing and distributed computing, the idea of providing free stuff and still making a profit, well, Google is it. And if there's a poster child for superior technology user experiences, it's definitely Apple. But providing that experience comes at a cost. So where we think that Google is open, flexible, and free, Apple is closed, tightly controlled, and dare we say it, expensive. Now, does this matter? Maybe not. Most of the time, they go their own way because they're doing different things. They're happily independent of each other, but sometimes they clash. And Google's Eric Schmidt... Uh, has recently resigned from Apple's board because the companies are now increasingly stepping on each other's toes and competing with each other. So we're going to talk about where they clash and as a bigger issue, which of these companies and philosophies is going to win in the long term. Uh, this has become a recently a hot topic on the Internet. Jason Calacanis, who is an Internet blogger, he posed the question, is Apple evil? Uh, a couple of months ago, and of course this ignited a fierce debate. And really, Apple's behaving the way it always has, but in the past it's been a bit of a bit player, because with the, the Apple Mac, even though people rave about it, it's pretty much only about 10 to 12% of the operating system market. So its, it's behavior has been tolerated and not scrutinized, but now it's entered areas where it's a serious competitor. For example, the Apple iPhone is very popular, and it's still second uh, because BlackBerry is the first in the smartphone market, but Apple's not a distant second. So it's come under closer and, I think, legitimate scrutiny. So today's episode of Focal Point, we're going to talk about this further, in particular the idea of open, which is Google, versus closed, which is Apple. 
All right, so I've said a lot, Chris. So <laughs> that was a great intro, Gihan. <laughs> Thank you. Let me, hand, let me hand over to you uh, because you've been sitting there patiently. Uh, why don't we start by talking about the, the whole idea of Open and Google? Yeah, okay. Recently, a blogger named Matt Assay, he writes for CNET he, uh, and writes about open source issues. He uh, posed the question of who is the biggest open source company, and most people would uh, say someone like Red Hat or Novell or Sun, who uh, have various open source software that they uh, develop uh, as part of an open source system. But in fact, when it comes to counting lines of code, Google happens to be the largest open source company. So they've got um, heaps of uh, projects that are all open sourced, as well as providing a repository where open source developers can um, host their projects and uh, collaborate on developing software. And uh, earlier this year, Australia's uh, and New Zealand's um, head of engineering for, for, Go uh, for Google, that's a guy called Alan Noble, he, uh, he gave a presentation on why Google is so much in love with the open source philosophy and employs it so much in developing uh, some of their software. And he gave four main reasons. The first of those was that open source speeds innovation by lowering the barrier to users and website owners and application developers. So it's much easier to develop stuff when you've got open source, open source resources out there that you can draw upon. The second thing that he said was that uh, open source reduces inefficiency. So um, there's already stuff out there that you can use and reuse in your own projects rather than having to write that yourself. Uh, the next thing he said was that generally the open source approach produces far more robust code in so much as there's a whole lot of um, other developers collaborating and sharing the source with you and through that way a lot of the uh, poor quality stuff gets weeded out and the, the cream rises to the top so to speak. And finally, he said, from Google's point of view, it makes great economic sense because it encourages people to innovate and develop new products that can then extend the reach of Google's products, and uh, those developers benefit by never having to pay for uh, the platform on which they're building. So from Google's point of view, it helps them extend their reach in developing software and applications for people to use on the web. I think that last point that you make, Chris, is probably the most interesting one, the really counterintuitive. So, uh, we're, so we're, we're talking about open source means that Google creates some software and then makes it freely available for other people to, to take, copy, change, adapt, and also build on. And I can understand the first three things that you said, like innovation, inefficiencies, and better code. That makes sense. But it's almost counterintuitive to think that it's better economic sense. In other words, Google makes more money by giving their stuff away. And yet, there are other open source companies that have found the same thing, haven't they? And I think the point that you're going to come to, Chris, is the whole idea of when Google does make its money, it absolutely makes sense for them to give away software in this way. Yeah, precisely. Their, their business model isn't on selling software. Their business model is that they're an internet company, so they earn revenue primarily from advertising on the web. And so the open source approach makes sense because it encourages people to use the web because people have gone out and, and built upon open source software that Google and others have provided and create compelling web applications and products and services. So that gets more people on the web. Once they're on the web, eventually they end up using a Google service and there's advertising there that Google can make money from. So yeah, so as well as... Um, 
the, the, the other approach that Google use is that they offer tons of free services, not, not necessarily open, so services like uh, their search engine, Blogger, YouTube, uh, Google Docs, which you and I are using right now, uh, and Picasa, and all these free services encourage people to use the web and, and see Google ads and perhaps click on them. And in the same way, the offering of open source APIs for their maps, their search engine, there's even a visualization one that uh, I'm quite in love with. Uh, for creating charts and graphs and that sort of thing. Uh, that encourages developers to come and produce some really compelling web applications and other services that will draw people to use the web and then Google can make some money from it, from uh, the kind of advertising they might see as they're using the web. So there's such a compelling value proposition for users, isn't there? It's like we go on there, I use Blogger for publishing my blog, publish videos to YouTube. As you said, we used we use Docs for publishing documents. I use Picasso for uploading photos. Practically everybody's using the Google search engine. And it's, it's it seems like for a typical user, you just go, why wouldn't you? It's just available, it's free, it's high quality, it's robust, and it doesn't cost you anything. And, and yet, companies like Google is still making money from it. That's right. It's like uh, we, we gave a podcast a few episodes ago about free being the new business model. And we talked about freemium and all those other things. But perhaps we didn't really focus on this idea that Google are employing, whereby you just use something like open source, all these free services and these free and open APIs. And... It's kind of like a trickle-down effect. So they provide all these open-source services and free services. People start using them, and eventually Google reasons that people will see some of the advertising, click on it, and Google will make money a long way down the track. You know, in fact, I was speaking to a client recently uh, telling her how to use Google Docs to upload documents because she wants to use this in her organization to share documents privately with her team members and I said well and she said how much does it cost and I said it doesn't cost anything it's it's free and she said well I wonder how long that's going to last and I pretty much said yeah forever like Google's model is yeah we make it free we're not just trying to do the freemium offering or the the free sample offering which are the two models that we talked about in that podcast they they do want to make it available free because the more that we use the web the, the more places that they can attach their ads to our eyeballs that's right <laughs> Yes, and so uh, something that Google has realised about uh, the development of people using the web is that mobile is the next big thing. Um, we talked about this earlier in the year, and your prediction for 2009, and I think also for for 2008, Gihan, was that uh, mobile was where we were going to see the big next the next big surge of uh, web usage. And Google realises this, and so one of the points at which they find themselves increasingly in competition with Apple is on mobile devices. So uh, last year, they released an open source operating system for mobile devices called Android. And uh, a lot of uh, mobile device manufacturers are releasing and planning to release handsets that make use of Google's Android operating system. So this is the point at which we find them coming into almost direct conflict with Apple's iPhone. Yeah, in fact, I, I recently bought an iPhone. Um which is it's really useful. It's the first real smartphone that I've owned and it's handy to have access to more than just a phone but have access to Google Maps, have access to checking my email regularly and there are a number of other apps and I've been cheap so far and I've only downloaded free apps and I've bought a couple but the couple that I bought have even been for my nephew and niece to play games on it. <laughs> um, and it's nice. It's like it's a really good experience. And we're going to talk about that when we when we talk about the the Apple side of the coin. And um, but equally, there are times that I've been a bit frustrated because I can watch YouTube videos, but I can't necessarily watch uh, videos from other 
other providers simply because the iPhone's been designed to work with YouTube, but you know it hasn't got the hasn't got the capability to watch videos from from other providers. So there are little things like that, which I think in a in like in a Google like environment, uh, some developer would have come along and created an app that would let you do that. Yeah, and so I think that highlights uh, the point about why Google is developing its own operating system. I mean, they. You could argue that why bother? There are things like the iPhone out there that give people a compelling way of accessing the web from a mobile device, from a smartphone. So why bother? And I think the point that you make about Apple controlling the way in which people access things like online videos uh, is a bit fri- a frightening proposition for Google because they, they lose control of that. So if they come up with an operating system themselves that device manufacturers can use, they're not necessarily going to be locked out of the way that people access web services. Yeah, that's that's right. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of those experience issues when we talk about when we talk about the way that Apple does it. Um, what about the what about the, the closedness of Google, Chris? Like we're saying that there is they do have a business model, and in some of the things that they do, they have to protect their business model. That they, they they can't just open up everything because then it would be so easy for competitors and um, and users to even game the system, and they can't make money from that. Yeah, well, uh, a little trademark example of that is uh, Gmail. There's a, a service in Gmail uh, in Germany called Gmail, which was set up well before Gmail.com uh, came along, uh, which is Google's um, on, uh, cloud computing service for email. And uh, I think, to put it bluntly, Google tried to steal that uh, that name in Germany, but the German court said no. This was around first, and you can't have it. And so now, if you try and use Gmail in Germany. Uh, you get a little message from Google saying you can't uh, Gmail is somebody else. Um, but uh, a better example, I think, is Google's famous PageRank algorithm. So that's the, the way in which they determine the order that your search results are listed on a, on a, on a search page. Uh, the broad details of how PageRank works are published. Uh, it's part of a patent, so it needs to be published in some level of detail. But the, the actual nitty-gritty of how the PageRank algorithm is implemented by Google is a well-kept secret. And that's necessary. They don't want um, web developers who want to appear at the top of the search engine results. They don't want them trying to game the PageRank algorithm so that they can get to the top. Because in doing so, they'll essentially degrade Google's search experience um, and so it's necessary for Google to be closed when it comes to things like their page rank algorithm. And I think most people who, who hear that and understand what, we, what we're saying would say, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. That's part of their core business model. And if they were to open that, it would actually, as you said, degrade the search experience to such an extent that the, the Google would start losing advertising revenue because the search results wouldn't be relevant anymore. People would stop using Google. Google would not be able to provide the sort of services that they're providing free at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about this, just the Android versus the iPhone, because you mentioned, and they're two different things I think we should make clear, that the iPhone is an actual device. It's a phone that you hold in your hand. Android is not a phone, it's an operating system, and so it runs on somebody else's phone. In the same way as Microsoft doesn't create, doesn't create and sell hardware, doesn't sell computers, Microsoft creates the Windows operating system, and then other hardware providers have to create um, the, the hardware that the, the Windows runs on, and that has its that has its pros and cons, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So um, when it comes to Android, that's the operating system. It's open source, so people can collaborate and uh, develop that operating system and make it better for all the reasons that um, Alan Noble mentioned uh, that I quoted at the beginning of uh, the section on Google. 
Um, and the, the upside of that is that uh, that um, Android has developed very quickly and it can be implemented on a wide variety of devices. So you're getting Motorola and um, and uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, Taiwanese company that are going to bring out a whole lot of others as well. Um, so we're going to get a lot of competing devices that compete with iPhone that have the Android operating system on them. And it's also good for developers who want to uh, develop for the Android, for, for Android devices, in that uh, they don't have to grapple with Apple's App Store. Um, so this has been a bit of a bone of contention for people who are developing Apple uh, apps for the iPhone in so much as there's a gatekeeper, um, the Apple namely, and they've been notoriously fickle about which applications are accepted for the App Store and which ones get rejected. And so there's a lot of dissatisfaction amongst developers for the iPhone uh, for on the grounds that it's a closed approach that Apple are taking. Uh, and that's not such a problem for people who are developing or developers who are writing applications for Android. The flip side of that, however, is that if you're developing for the iPhone, you know what you're developing for. It's a single device which has certain um, certain parameters in terms of memory and screen resolution, and you know that it's got a touch interface and it has an accelerometer and a camera and speakers. When it comes to devices that are running Android, well, you really don't know what you're getting. You don't know whether you're going to get a device with a particular processor or so much memory, what kind of screen resolution it might have. And that makes the proposition of developing for Android a much more difficult thing to do. So those are the two sides of the coins. On one hand, you've got Apple acting as a, a rather fickle gatekeeper if you want to develop an application for the iPhone. The f but the good thing about it is you know what you're developing, you know the platform you're developing for. With Android, you don't have the barriers of Apple uh, uh, sort of blocking your access to the App Store, but you do have to take into consideration all the plethora of devices that uh, might be running Android. And I think that's one of the, like going back to the original argument that we talked about, the Microsoft versus Apple argument, that's one of the arguments made in favour of the Apple Mac is that that things work smoothly and they work as expected and they take a few, sometimes fewer steps than they would on Windows. And part of that is for the same reason, Chris, that, win that Windows runs on PCs which are created by a number of different manufacturers. Um, it's much easier and there's a, there's a much greater amount of software written for Windows. I shouldn't necessarily say it's much easier, but certainly there's a, a great amount of software. But it also means that anybody writing a piece of software doesn't know exactly what machine is going to be running on. And so it has to t take care of and cater for lots of different scenarios, whereas with the Apple Mac, it typically caters for this, this one box that it knows about because that's all that Apple allows. Yeah, it's, it's a much safer proposition. And, you know, when we, we'll talk about Apple in a moment, but it makes sense for Apple to uh, be quite jealous or to, to be guarding jealously the kinds of apps that you can have on the iPhone. They want to make sure that the user experience is not like using Windows where things lock up and crash, the blue screen of death as it became known, that uh, all the applications run smoothly on their iPhone and, and there's no bad feedback from users. The developers might not be enjoying the experience so much, but uh, the users of the iPhone are getting good quality apps that uh, you know, don't lock up and, and do, as, do what they're expected to do. 
Yeah, and I find with my iPhone, it's I do have apps that do lock up the system, and I've got rid of them. However, then the minority, and as you say, there's a quality control process, which, as you say, Apple can be a little bit of a fickle gatekeeper, but equally, they provide some level of quality control before allowing apps into the system. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's let's move on to Apple, Chris, and the idea that they're closed, but not that's not a completely bad thing and not necessarily a bad thing at all. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense from uh, for the kind of business that Apple is, which is primarily a hardware company. They do sell a lot of software as well, and they also sell uh, movies and uh, music through the iTunes store, but primarily they're a hardware company. It's the devices that are their bread and butter. So, you know, everything from Macs to iPhones, iPods, iTouches, iBalls, anything starting with i, they seem to have a market on. Um, and it's they're compelling devices. You know, there's a Quite a bit of fanboyism uh, associated with Macs, but it's not unwarranted. They really are great devices, and that's why they're so jealously guarding and taking this close to pro- closed approach to the way that uh, things are developed for the Mac. They want to make sure that it's uh, not like a Windows box. It doesn't crash unnecessarily. It doesn't detract from the experience that users get when they buy a Mac. They expect to get a compelling device and a compelling experience when they're using it. Yeah, and in fact, they've been fairly aggressive in pursuing people who they who they're concerned about, people who are perhaps getting in the way and harming that their reputation and particularly the experience. Uh, and they've been pretty aggressive in pursuing some of them. Sometimes it seems a little bit frivolously. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I'm going to rattle off a, a few examples of that. The first and probably best known is a company called Cystar. So they're attempting to market Mac clones. So the operating system, Mac OS X, can run on hardware other than Macintosh, Apple Macintosh hardware. But the terms of use for Mac OS X, OS X are that it must be run on Apple hardware. So Sidestar are trying to sidestep this and uh, uh, provide the software running on Mac clones or Hackintoshes, sometimes they're referred to. And in fact, there are there are developers out there who are who go and do that, who go and um, provide instructions for installing uh, the OS X operating system on just you know a PC that you might have bought from Dell or HP or something like that. But, uh, of course, that's bad news for Apple. They don't want that sort of thing happening because it undermines their sales of Macs. They just, they, they simply can't tolerate that. And so they've pursued Sistar aggressively, um, and I can understand that. That's in, entirely warranted. Um, and more recently, uh, the Palm came out with a, a brand-new smartphone called the Pre, and it did something a bit tricky in terms of syncing uh, with the iTunes. It... it pretended it was actually an um, an iPod so that you could sync it with iTunes. And so Apple have, um, in, in the latest version of iTunes, they have changed the way that uh, devices sync with the iTunes uh, application to ensure that third-party devices like Palm can't, can't do that because they want people who use iTunes to be using iPods. Um, Again, entirely understandable for a company who live and die by the sales of their devices. But a kind of weird one that uh, Australians might have heard of is that recently Apple went after Woolworths, who, have, who are a, um, a grocer in Australia, who changed their logo to uh, something that looks remarkably like an Apple. Um, 
I'm not sure whether they'll be successful in um, getting Apple, uh, getting Woolworths to change their logo. Logo. Uh, the, the argument was made that, well, you know, Woolworths owns a store called Dick Smith that retails electronics, so people might uh, might be confusing the Woolworths <laughs> logo with the Apple Mac logo. I'm not sure. Yes, they go to their local supermarket and they they're looking for compu- the computer section. That's right. And they buy uh, they buy fresh fruit instead. <laughs> Yes, which uh, might undermine their sales of, I don't know, the iBanana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and again, the latest, the latest version of the OSX operating system, um, Snow Leopard, uh, is, uh, checks for the, the processor of the, of the um, device that you're running Snow Leopard on, and if it detects that it's an Intel Atom processor, then it, it uh, refuses to run, and that's because they're worried, again, that that these Hackintosh developers might find a way of running Snow Leopard on the, the various netbooks that uh, usually run the Intel Atom processor. Yeah, so when you describe those scenarios, Chris, and you explain the rationale behind it, and if you say, if you understand the big picture, the context around this is Apple is a hardware company. They, they live and die, as you put it, by selling devices, and everything that they're doing to block other people is to make sure that that they block. They're taking out competitors who might be harming themselves with those devices. Yeah, and also preserving the the experience that people expect when they they pay a premium for an Apple Mac. Let's face it; these the, the devices are more expensive than uh, a comparable PC, but you're paying for a much better experience than you'd get if you bought a PC. So they want to preserve that as well and protect that. Yeah, that's right. So all of those things make sense. The one that's perhaps quite controversial, which happened recently, is that Google created an application for the iPhone called Google Voice, which mirrors their Google Voice uh, application that they they have available, but they made one for the iPhone, and Apple rejected it. And... uh, they gave a reason which many people thought was spurious, that they, they said that Google Voice would confuse people because the iPhone already has a phone uh, application, so it already has a, a phone application. But lots of people think that Apple is worried that too much of Google's functionality is going to be available on the iPhone, and Google's going to kind of take over the iPhone. And really, there's no reason why, if Google wanted to, they couldn't do that, because a lot of the iPhone applications, like Maps, are supported by Google, and, and Google has a lot of good stuff, as we talked about. Yeah, they, that, that's right. I think that's the, the, the right reasoning. I think that that's probably what they're worried about, and and it also explains why Google are developing Android. They because Apple has the ability to lock them out of the, the iPhone for whatever reason. So Google needs to make sure that they've got a platform on which they can ensure that access to the web involves Google services. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we say um, that, that Apple, for, for good business reasons, has decided to be closed and tightly controlled. And uh, you know, some, of the, some of the counter-arguments to that is that Apple uses open source software, which it does, which it does, but generally it uses it and then closes off the the, the resulting software. Yeah, that's right. So the, the operating system that underpins Mac OS X is a, an, an OS called Darwin, and that is open source. And so uh, the, the, Mac, the OS X layer of it is closed, but the kernel of it, if you like, Darwin, is open source. And as well as Darwin, there are a whole lot of other open source projects that are hosted and fostered by Apple um, for developing software that runs on Apple devices, so Macs and iPhones and so forth. And again, that makes perfect sense. We're talking about software now um, that 
they, they want, for, for precisely the same reasons as Alan Noble said that open source was good for Google, uh, open source is similarly good for Apple software because it makes it more robust, they get all the benefits and leverage from um, collaborative development. And so when it comes to Darwin and applications that you can run on your iPhone or run on your Macs, open source is a great thing for Apple there and it makes sense for them to be fostering and developing open source in that respect. But at the device level and at the, the high level of the operating systems, that's where they're closed and making sure that uh, they they protect their marketplace. Yes, I think what we said is that both Apple and Google have very good reasons for encouraging developers to create software for their for their platforms, and for the slightly different reasons. So Google's doing it because it, it encourages more people to use the web, and therefore they can advertise more. Apple's doing it because it encourages more people to get the hardware, because what's the point of having a computer if there's no software that runs on it? Um, and they can sell more hardware. They can exactly. sell more computers and iPods and iPhones. Yep. Yeah, and I, I heard somebody say this about Apple, which kind of summarizes their their philosophy or their closeness. It's a slightly negative comment, but it it kind of makes sense. And they're comparing it to to Mussolini and his his dictatorial regime. And they say, you know, like say what you like about him, but at least the trains ran on time. Yeah, I don't know if that's ominous an ominous comparison given the way that uh, Mussolini came to an end. <laughs> that's right. We shouldn't extend that metaphor too far. Um, <laughs> But that actually is one of the things that uh, that characterizes the way that Apple runs. You know, they they are in some ways dictatorial, tightly controlled, closed, but they give a superior user experience. And maybe they're willing to say, yeah, that's good enough. That's uh, We're willing to make that compromise and we're choosing to be on that side so that we focus on the user experience and anything that gets in the way, we will just block. Yeah. We've talked about both Apple and Google in terms of being open and closed. So I guess we come to the end, Chris, and we're, we're wondering, is open better than closed and which strategy is going to win? And I think perhaps just from the chat that you and I had uh, before the call, uh, we might have slightly different opinions about it. So let's share them both. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the question of whether open is better than closed, I think it depends. I, as we've just said, it makes perfect sense for Google to take an open approach and um, for their business. And similarly for, for Apple, I think it makes perfect sense for them to take the closed approach in terms of making sure device sales aren't undermined and the experience is protected. So in terms of deciding which is a better stra strategy, it really depends on the kind of business model that you have. Um, and I, I agree with that, Chris, and I just make the additional comment that, uh, that the whole idea of being open even if you do it in a limited way, as we've talked about the way that Apple does it, should be should be something that people are encouraged to do and organisations are encouraged to do rather than holding on to everything tightly. There are good strategic reasons for making things open and they can actually improve your business model and the, economy, the, the economics behind it might actually help you. So don't automatically think just because you're opening it, you're giving it away free and you're losing market share and you're losing your position yeah, that's right. And the same has happened with Microsoft. So, so as we pointed out, Apple are making great use of open source to encourage people to develop applications for their devices <clears throat> and their operating systems. And Microsoft, who for a long time were very anti-open source and saw them as a direct competitor, so operating systems like Linux, for instance, they've also realized the good sense of the economic good sense of making use of open source. And so that now they're starting to focus, foster open source projects for running on Windows operating systems. So when it comes to which of the two strategies will win, I, I don't think we can necessarily draw the conclusion that if Google wins, then open is better. If closed, if, if Apple wins, then closed is better. 
I think that probably Google would could win because they're just so much bigger than Apple. They could crush Apple if they wanted to. They might need to resort to some um, anti-competitive behaviour for which they get in trouble, but ultimately they would still win. Um, but I don't think they would necessarily win through uh, competition based on an open strategy versus a closed strategy. What do you right, think, Dan? Well, that, that's interesting because I, I don't agree with that, but that's okay. We're just making an opinion and prediction. I think that Google will win. And I think it will win on its merits. I think that we're already in the stage now where this this whole Web 2.0 philosophy of collaboration and shared and open is actually going to be the foundation for, for business in the 21st century. And people are already talking about a thing called Web Squared, which we might talk about in a future podcast, which is the, the next level, exponentially the next level of Web 2.0. And I think Google is more along those lines. And Apple is still trying to hold on to what has been its competitive Advantage, which has been the superior user experience, um, and I don't think you can hold on to it uh, in the same way that it it has been able to in the past. And already, I'm hearing a bit of there's been a bit of a backlash against Apple. Um, certainly, with the smartphones, Apple was great because it was the first on the block with the with the that level of smartphone. I mean, the Blackberries were around for a while, but that level of consumer smartphone, Apple was definitely the best one around. Uh, but there are competitors coming along and. I'm just hearing that those competitors are as good but more open. So I have a feeling that Google is going to win because of the way that it's operating. Right. Okay, well, time will tell. We'll agree to disagree. Um, yeah. One thing it does mean is, I th at, for, at least for the short term, is that we've got some really healthy competition in the smartphone space between the Android-based devices and the, uh, and the iPhone. And, well, that can only be a good thing. I agree. I agree. I think that they're both, as we said at the start, they're both smart, hip, savvy, modern companies, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. I don't think that either of them is a dinosaur, unlike uh, the way that some people think about Microsoft. So they're, they're both seen as, as modern organizations, modern companies, and I think they both have a lot going for them. So watch this space. We'll be back in uh, probably a couple of weeks' time with more of this good stuff. We will. Thanks very much, Chris. Speak to you then, Gihan. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point Podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A.com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time. <laughs>